to the battle uh, uh, and, and um, fighting for the Lord and his kingdom and, and, and things of God. And that, that plays out in many different ways and in many different avenues. But we were challenged this weekend to, to engage the battle. And um, there's an adversary. So please keep the men in the fellowship for, in prayer and, uh, and to protect us from those, those spiritual battles as we step forward in faith. Now, as we begin this morning, I want to read chapter 5 to you, pray, and then we'll, we'll get into our, our study. So in verse five, or chapter 5, verse 1, it, it says of the book of Exodus, Afterward, Moses and Aaron went in and told Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. And Pharaoh said, Who is this Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, nor will I let Israel go. So they said, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please, let us go three days' journey into the desert and sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. Then the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people from their work? Get back to your labor. And Pharaoh said, look, the people of the land are many now, and you make them rest from their labor. So the same day Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and the officers, saying in verse 7, you shall no longer give the people straw to make brick as before. Let them go and gather straw for themselves, and you shall lay on them the quota of bricks which they made before. You shall not reduce it, for they are idle. Therefore they cry out, saying, Let us go and sacrifice to our God. Let more work be laid on men, that they may labor in it, and let them not regard false words. And verse 10, the taskmasters of the people and the officers went out and spoke with the people, saying, Thus says Pharaoh, I will not give you straw. Go get yourself straw wherever you can find it, yet none of you will, none of your work will be reduced. So the people were scattered abroad throughout all the land of Egypt to gather stubble instead of straw. And the taskmasters forced them to hurry, saying, Fulfill your work, your daily quota, as when there was straw. Also, the officers of the children of Israel, whom Pharaoh's taskmasters did over them, were beaten and were asked, Why have you not fulfilled your task in making both brick yesterday and today as before? You think they said, Because you didn't give us any straw. No. <laughs> then the officers of the children of Israel came and cried out to Pharaoh and said, Why are you doing thus with your servants? There is no straw given to your servants. And they say to us, Make brick. And indeed, your servants are beaten, but the fault is in your own people. But he said, you are idle, idle. Therefore, you say, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Therefore, go now and work, for no straw shall be given you, yet you shall deliver the quota of bricks. And the officers of the children of Israel saw that they were in trouble after it was said, you shall not Reduce any bricks from your daily quota. Then, verse 20, as they came out from Pharaoh, they met with Moses and Aaron, who stood there to meet them. And they said to them, Let the Lord look on you and judge, because you have made us abhorrent in the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants, to put a sword in their hand to kill us. And so Moses returned to the Lord and said, Lord, why have you brought trouble on this people? Why is it that you have sent me? For since I have came to Pharaoh... To speak in your name, he has done evil to this people. Neither have you delivered your people at all. Let's pray. 
Lord, we know that you're faithful to your promises. Every one of them, God, the ones that, that you have spoken to us personally, the ones that are in your word that apply to our lives and to the lives of um, those around us. And, and God, as we read about this account of when you delivered your people and how you delivered your people, and, and we see, Lord, that um, your people struggled with faith and trusting in you and and, and, and that when hard things come, Lord, they, they doubted and even turned against the guy that you sent to deliver them. I pray, Lord, that that would not be true in our lives. Lord, as is so many people we know, that when life has gotten hard or when difficult things have come upon them, that, Lord, they've forsaken your deliverer, that they've turned their back on Jesus Christ. And we pray for those people now, Lord, who we know, maybe a friend, a family member, a co-worker, Lord, someone we know, God, who has struggled, that's had a hard thing come upon him, that has backslidden and, and, and um, gone back to the world, gone back to Pharaoh and, and, and doubted um, your promises to them. And Lord, for anyone here this morning who may be struggling with that very same thing, I pray, God, that you would speak truth to us through your word, by your spirit. And Lord, that you would build our faith. Lord, that you would strengthen our faith, that we'd see, God, how awesome you are and how much love you have for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, this chapter, which begins the detailed count of this showdown between the ruler of one of the greatest kingdoms of the ancient world and um, the God of the Hebrews, is this introduction for us to one of the most epic displays of God's power. We're going to be reading about and God's demonstration of power over all of creation. And even though Pharaoh was probably one of the most powerful persons on the planet at this time, we know that ultimately we know that he had no chance, did he? No chance of winning this battle against God. And ultimately all of his resistance that we're reading about now and we'll continue to read about, it was, it was futile. Yet, God, who could have taken Pharaoh's life, right, at any given moment, and personally walked his people out of Egypt and into the promised land, engaged this battle with great restraint. Something I want to point out before we begin. That he engaged this battle with great restraint. And as we read and study through these next nine chapters, we'll come to realize that God's restraint in his demonstrations of his power and authority was the means by which God was making himself known. It was the means by which God was making himself known to not only Pharaoh, but to the Egyptian people, and also to his children, the Hebrew people, the children of Israel. And one of the main things that, that all of those who witnessed these displays of God's power and authority, and that we too get to read about today, all that these people would come to understand, and hopefully that we would come to understand, is that there's none greater than Yahweh the great I am, the God of the Hebrew people, and that he alone is worthy of all of our praise and all of our worship. There's a famous sermon given by a man by the name of Jonathan Edwards. It's called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. You can go online and search it and read it. It's, you should take, take a chance to do that. But Jonathan Edwards elaborated on this point about God alone being worthy of our worship and, and about kings and rulers of this, of this day that we live in and the ancient ones that we read about also as they stood before God. But he wrote and he said this, 
He said, all the kings of the earth before God are grasshoppers. They're nothing. Less than nothing. Both their love and their hatred is to be despised. The wrath of the great king of kings is as much more terrible than theirs as his majesty is greater. And guys, Moses had been sent by God as his ambassador to convey this message And to inform Pharaoh that if he did not release the Hebrew people, then Jehovah would declare war on him and on his gods and would not stop attacking Egypt until the people of Israel were set free. In other words, as God's ambassadors, Moses and Aaron had one message to deliver. Let my people go or else. And having been encouraged by the expressions of confidence that had been voiced by the the, the people of Israel back at the end of chapter 4 and and also being encouraged by the promises of ultimate victory that God had given to Moses back in chapter 3 when he was still in the wilderness, we see that he and Aaron, Moses and Aaron, in this chapter, verse 1, march boldly into Pharaoh's palace to deliver God's command. However, Pharaoh's responses here and on through the next nine chapters to Moses and Aaron, they were predictable. God had even spoken how how Pharaoh would respond, how he would resist. They were predictable as, as he rejected God's command commands to let his people go. And, 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 and predictable, even as he despised the very miracles of God that Moses would perform, and we read, as we read in this chapter, at the end of next chapter, and then into the chapter after that, that, that Pharaoh deliberately hardened his heart against the Lord. Now, as we look back to the beginning of this chapter, I want to point out, if you go there with me to verses 1, really, verses 1 and 2. I want to point out that, that when Moses first appeared before Pharaoh, this original request wasn't a request for deliverance from the land of Egypt, was it? It was really a humble and modest request at this point that he conveyed on behalf of God to, quote-unquote, let my people go. And, 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 and it was humble and modest because really at this point, Moses was only asking for Pharaoh to let the Hebrew people go so that they, according to verse 3, might journey into the wilderness, a three days journey, and, and hold a feast, make sacrificial offerings to their God, to worship their God, to have fellowship with their God, to have communion with their God. And if we figure that there would be perhaps one day of sacrifices and, and worship and then the additional three-day journey back to, to, to their land, where, back to the, to, to, to the, to, into Egypt where they were working there, then the Hebrew people, they would only be gone a total of seven days. And think about that. One week's vacation after 400 years? Come on. Right? Some of you might feel like that in your job you're in now. And this first request to let my people go is, is really one of seven that we're going to read about. One of seven that God would demand of Pharaoh and that Pharaoh would refuse. Let my people go. No. Let my people go. No. On and on and on. Consequently, it was this 
first refusal that we read about here in this chapter, this refusal that Pharaoh made here in verse 2 that set the stage. It set the stage for a confrontation which had repercussions not only for Pharaoh, but also for Moses and for Israel. And as we examine Pharaoh's refusal, there are a few important things for us to take note of that I want to draw our attention to this morning. The first has to do with this question, with Pharaoh's question in verse 2. If you look there, where Pharaoh asked, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice to let Israel go? Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice to let Israel go? In other words, what Pharaoh was saying is, Why should I obey this God? I don't even know him. And the fact of the matter is, is this question... If you think about it, it was a reasonable question to ask. Since the Egyptian people considered Pharaoh to be God, a God. And so why should their king, their God, obey a strange God that neither Pharaoh nor the Egyptian people knew, right? Furthermore, what right did this new God have to call the Israelites his people? After all, they were Pharaoh's slaves, what do you mean, your people? They're my slaves. So if Pharaoh were to obey this demand, think about it. He would, first of all, be acknowledging that there was a deity, a God greater than himself. That's huge. Don't skip over that. That applies to our lives today. If he was to submit himself to God, to this request, to this demand, this command to let his people go, even to offer sacrifices and to, to make worship to another God, what he would be acknowledging is that there was a God greater than himself. And you know what? He wasn't about to do that. He wasn't about to do that. And so in his pride, we see that Pharaoh rejected this demand to let the Hebrew people go. Now, guys, this reason... These reasons for why Pharaoh would not obey these words of God, they're very similar to the reasons for why many people today will not also obey God's words, God's commands, God's warnings, God's admonitions. In that they, and I'm going to say we, they slash we, really um, do not really know God. The God of the Bible who is good, kind, gracious, just, forgiving, and merciful. And therefore, they slash we, we do not trust God. We don't trust Him because we don't know Him. They don't know Him. And they don't know that what God is asking, or what God is asking of us, is the best. Right? Is that not true? When we say I don't know about this, God. I don't know about this one. And really what we're saying in our unbelief is we don't know God. We don't trust Him. We don't know Him well enough to know that He's got good in our mind. Good in His mind for us. Good intentions. Or, in addition to that, like Pharaoh, they slash we refuse to God because we don't want to acknowledge that there's a God greater than us. 
They refuse to obey God. We refuse to obey God because we want to be our own God. Right? We, 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 we want to live according to our own will. We want to we do our own things. We want to have it our own way. This was Pharaoh, and it's the heart of man, and it's the same heart that's in us. But the fact of the matter is, God, guys, think about this. This is very important because knowing God, which I think is, is one of the primary reasons, hopefully the most important reason for why you are here this morning is to know God. But the fact of the matter is, is that knowing God and coming to know God and God's will is directly linked to our obedience. Do you understand that? Pharaoh would never come to know God. And Pharaoh, who would only ever know about the God of the Hebrews, would never truly come to know him because he would never humble himself. He would never obey God. And in light of this, we need to understand that our own knowledge of God is directly linked to our obedience. Our own knowing God is directly linked to our obedience. And if we are obedient to the Lord, then we will be assured that he will make himself known to us in this way, in an intimate way, in a personal way, in an experiential way. And in doing so, he'll provide this divine direction for our lives. But if we refuse to humble ourselves to the commands of God, to the will of God, guys, we will never know God or we will never continue to grow in our knowledge of God. This, this truth is expressed all throughout the Old Testament, and, and Paul writes about it even in, in 1 Corinthians. But I have a verse here out of the book of Job that expresses this, where a man by the name of Elihu, one man who came to speak to Job, he said this in Job 36, verses 10 through 12. He says, he, speaking of God, also opens their ear to instruction, and he commands that they turn from iniquity. If they obey and serve him... They shall spend their days in prosperity and their years in pleasure. But if they do not obey, they shall perish by their sword and they shall die without knowledge. And what he's specifically referring to is this knowledge of God, this knowing of God. And, 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 and Elihu's speaking, he's saying, Job, obedience and knowledge of God, knowing God is connected. There can't be one without the other. And Moses and Aaron, we read here, that when they heard of Pharaoh's refusal, they made no attempt to tell Pharaoh about their God. They're not, well, let me tell you about him. Because it was an issue of obedience. The Lord tells us even that we're not to cast our pearl before swine. That if somebody's rejecting him, hard-hearted to him, he says, don't waste your time, go on to the next. doesn't mean that God's done with that person. It means that God's still doing a work on that person in their hard heart and bringing them to that place. And so Pharaoh... At this point, anyway, Moses and Aaron refused. They didn't make any, any attempt to tell Pharaoh about their God. Rather, they just reiterated what they already spoken in verse 3. They only spoke of how God had met with them. They told, hey, listen, God came to us, and this is what he told us. And in doing so, they once again asked for permission to go and sacrifice to their God. And then they did something else here. There's a warning here. There's, they, address the, they address the importance of obedience. They, 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 they address the importance of obeying God's command. And really what they were saying to Pharaoh is, Pharaoh, this is a matter of life and death. 
since a refusal meant that God might come upon them with pestilence or the sword. But we see that this only angered Pharaoh, who took this warning as a threat. And in doing so, he went as far as to accuse Moses and Aaron of taking his workers away from their labors. And he dismissed their words and even said, if you look in verse 9, that they were false words, vain words, lies, depending on what translation that you have. In an attempt to drive a wedge between his slaves and their would-be, if you will, deliverer, Pharaoh sought to punish the Hebrew people because of Moses and Aaron. He wanted to turn them against Moses and Aaron. And he gave this command to his taskmasters to increase their burden by making the Hebrew people gather their own straw wherever they could find it and still maintain this same quota of, 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 of bricks that had to be made. And that was intentional. That was a setup for failure, right? And it's safe to say that from Pharaoh's point of view, guys, as we look at this, what was important to Pharaoh at this point? What was important to Pharaoh from his point of view was this work of making bricks. That was important to him, the work. And, and as we look at that into the context of what we're reading here and what we're being told here, we see that from Pharaoh's point of view, the work of making bricks was more important than letting the Hebrew people go in order to fellowship with and, and worship their God. I don't know about you, but when I, when I read this and I understood this and I started looking about it, I got convicted in my own heart as God started, started shining light into my own life, into the world and our society that we live in. You know, because this mindset of Pharaoh who said in verse 4, get back to your labor, is no different than the mindset of the world today who views fellowship with God and the worship of God as a big waste of time. Right? It's one of the things that we're even fighting in our youth ministry right now. And I mean the youth ministry across this town. And, and I'm going to speak it from the pulpit. I just did because it is, it's a satanic attack. There's a new principal at the high school. His name's Bill Summers. He's a good administrator. But he's an opponent of Jesus Christ. And he's an opponent to the, to the youth pastors and, and the young life leaders of of. of, of bringing anything into the schools where we've had much liberty in the years past with previous administrations, even, even to the point where he's, he's refusing our lawful entry at times to do the things that God calls us to do. In addition to that, he's developed this, this, uh, this secular youth group, I'm going to call it, and it's a wonderful thing for, for the unity within the school system is called the pride. And it has all kinds of wonderful things. My daughter loves it. And there's so many other high school kids here love it. It's a great thing. But you know what? I don't know if he did that intentionally. I doubt it. I don't even think he knows for sure. But that pride has become a secular youth group with no religious value system, with no morals, with no, nothing to do with God that has pulled kids out of the youth groups in our own churches across this community. And not only that, they, they deliberately schedule, and, and maybe I'm being a little conspiracy theorist here, but they, 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 they have gone to great, great means to schedule all kinds of really fun high school youth-related events on Wednesday nights, on Monday nights when, when Young Life meets, on Wednesday night when, when church youth groups usually meet. 
And it's a perfect example of this worldly system that says, hey, fellowship with God and hanging out with God isn't important. You guys, sadly, even we as believers can fall prey to this mentality. By the way, pray about that. It's something we as youth leaders, the youth leaders in our community, they, we have... Uh, we have an organization called Youth United. Justin's a part of it, and our youth ministry is a part of it. They meet at the bridge once a month. It's kind of like a ministerial alliance for the youth. And we've discussed this, and we've purposed in our hearts together to pray about this because that's where the battle's won. I'm not asking that you go call Bill Summers. Don't do that. He's a good guy. He is a good guy. But join with us in prayer. Partner with us in prayer that that stronghold will be taken down. Because sadly, even as we as believers, we can fall prey to this mentality that Pharaoh had as we're truly influenced by this performance and production-based society that we live in to believe ultimately that, uh, that it's, it's a waste of time to go to church on Sunday and Wednesday, right? Or to attend a, a women's or a men's Bible study unless there's delicious ribs. <laughs> or even to set aside a daily time for your personal devotion. After all, guys, there's work that has to be done. There's work that has to be done. But guys, we must remember that these societal pressures and really our own foolish thinking that tempts us to put these temporal things of our lives before God uh, aren't it. And we must seek first, as the Bible tells us, the kingdom of God and His righteousness if we ever want the things of this life to be right, right? Verse 12, look there with me. It says, so the people were scattered abroad throughout all the land of Egypt to gather stubble instead of straw. And the taskmasters forced them to hurry, saying, fulfill your work. Your daily quota is when there was straw. And also the offers of the children of Israel, whom Pharaoh set the taskmasters, had set over them, were beaten and were asked, why have you not fulfilled your task in making brick both yesterday and today. Then, verse 5, this is key. The, the, and, 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 and um, Well, I'll just read this first. And then the officers of the children of Israel came and cried out to Pharaoh, saying, Why are you dealing thus with your servants? And I love it that after this conversation in verse 20, we told that Moses and Aaron just happened to be there when these knuckleheads who'd gone to Pharaoh, exited that meeting. I love that. But I want to point out that this command to get back to work of making bricks with this new task of gathering their own straw, it produced the outcome, did it not, that Pharaoh was expecting, that he had planned for, that he had hoped for. And we read here in verse 14 that because they were not able to make their quota of bricks, that the officers of the children of Israel were beaten. They didn't just beat the workers. Pharaoh was smarter than that. They beat the leaders. They beat the officers. And according to verse 15, when the officers came, these ones who had been beaten, they cried out to Pharaoh. They cried out to Pharaoh. For these harsher conditions and, and that, 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 that they were now suffering under. And what did Pharaoh do? He blamed it on Moses and Aaron who had come before him and demanded that the people be
be let go to sacrifice to the Lord. And Pharaoh, you know, he, of course, he's all, well, you guys must have to have enough work to do. You're idle. You want to go have a vacation. And as we might imagine, when the officers heard this, they saw that they were in trouble, it says. And what they do? They turned against Moses and Aaron. Even though, as we've read in the previous chapter, even though they had seen those miraculous signs that God had sent Moses with, and it says that they had believed the Lord and worshipped him because they knew that God was, had sent Moses to set him free. Boy, talk about fickle, right? And even though we can sympathize with the children of Israel for their condition and what they were going through and the hardship and the tribulation and the trials, it was clearly a mistake for them to have gone and complained to Pharaoh. Why? Because they should have gone to God. They should have called out to God who had already, we know, looked upon their afflictions and heard their cries. And then they should have reminded themselves of the promise that God had spoken to them and claimed them in faith. They should have gone to the one who God had sent to deliver them and cast their burden before him, but they did not. And we know that this would not be the last time that Moses would be opposed and criticized by his own people who really at this point did not even understand what the Lord was doing. And during the next 40 years of wandering through the wilderness, complaining about God's will and criticizing God's leaders, the Hebrew people would become characterized by this complaining attitude. Were they not? Complaining and murmuring. But before we can judge them, or before we do judge them too harshly, I think we should ask ourselves if we as God's people are any different today. Are we? Am I? Are you, are we any different today? In other words, when things aren't going our own way and we don't understand what the Lord is doing by allowing for that hard thing, those difficult things to come into my life, do we complain to or even against one another or do we cry out to God in prayer? For example, when we're having a hard time at work because of a new policy or because of a difficult coworker, is our first response to cry out to God or do we cry out and complain to our boss or the other coworkers? Or when we are having difficulties in our difficulties in our marriage. Ooh, that one hurts. Or when we're having difficulties in our marriage and our spouse has done something to hurt us, something we don't like. We run to a flame. Uh, uh, do we run to a friend and complain about that spouse, or do we cry out to God and seek direction from Him? And the truth is, if the truth was to be told, I think that we would all admit that we are light, a lot like these officers who ran to Pharaoh, the children of Israel who turned to Pharaoh in their time of difficulty rather than turning to God. It doesn't make any sense when you think about that that they would turn back to the very man who had been enslaving them all of these years rather than turning to God. And sadly, when they did this, the peace of their troubles or the peace from their troubles was not found, was it? What were they thinking? Did they think the Pharaoh was going to go, oh, sorry, let me get you some straw. No. But I mean, that's like us, is it? When we are complaining, what do we think? When we, rather than running to God, do we think that we're going to find peace? 
in that place, in that moment, in that way? No. As a matter of fact, what, what inevitably happens all of our times is that our troubles increase, do they not? makes things worse. And it made things worse here in this situation because not only did they not find peace and their troubles weren't lifted, but they were a discouragement to the very persons whom God had sent to help them. But if they had first called out to God and put their trust in them like they did when Moses first came and told them about God's plan to deliver them, They would have received this peace, a supernatural peace, the Bible tells us, a peace that surpasses the understanding of the situation in spite of the new troubles that they had. You know, and this is something that David, who was, King David, who was so familiar with with troubles, some that he brought on himself, but others that were no fault of his own. And he spoke of this in Psalm 55 when he said in verse 22, cast your cares upon the Lord and he will sustain you. He will never let you. The righteous fall. Now in verse 22, Moses responds. It says, so Moses returned to the Lord and said, Lord, why have you brought trouble on this people? Why is it that you sent me? Things weren't going the way that Moses had hoped for or had Moses had expected, even though the Lord had told him, in this life you will have adversity. Maybe he didn't say it exactly like that. But yet that's what the Lord says to us. And that was the message to Moses in that Pharaoh is not going to heed you. He's going to resist you. There's going to be adversity. And yet God tells us the same thing. In this life, you will have adversity. They will hate you, Jesus said, because they hate me. And we too, like Moses, have expectations of something other than that and we're discouraged when these things happen and so it says in verse 23 as Moses go on he says for since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name he has done evil to this people neither have you delivered your people at all then verse 1 of chapter 6 it says then the Lord said to Moses now you shall see what I will do with Pharaoh I love that okay now you're gonna see you're gonna see what I will do to Pharaoh For with a strong hand, he will let them go. And with a strong hand, he will drive them out of his land. And and God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. Again, you know what that is? Moses, I'm God. You're not. You worry about what you've been called to do, and you let me worry about what I said I'll do. I am the Lord. I appear to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, but my name is... Lord, I was not known to them. I've also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land of their pilgrimage in which they were strangers. And I have also heard the groaning of the children of Israel whom the Egyptians kept in bondage. And I have remembered my covenant, my promises to them. Therefore, verse 6, say to the children of Israel, I am the Lord. And then he goes on to say, I will bring you out from under the burdens of Egypt. I will rescue you from their bondage. And I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. I will take you, verse 7, as my people. And I will be your God. Then you shall know that I am the Lord who brings you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. And I, verse 8, I will bring you into the land which I swore to you to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And I will give it 
to you as a heritage. I am the Lord. So Moses spoke to the children of Israel, but they did not heed Moses because of the anguish of spirit and cruel bondage. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, go in, tell Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, to let the children of Israel go out of his hands. And Moses spoke before the Lord saying, the children of Israel have not heeded me. How then shall Pharaoh heed me? For I am of uncircumcised lips. When the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, and he gave them a command for the children of Israel and for Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, to bring the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt. Now, guys, even though Moses was facing a discouraging set of circumstances when the people went to Pharaoh and complained against him, we see that Moses did not let it. This is very key. This is something that God's been talking to me about. He, he, he did not let it become a discouragement to him. Even though Moses was facing a, 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 a discouraging set of circumstances when the people went to Pharaoh and complained against him, we see that Moses did not let it become a discouragement to them. And this was because he took him before the Lord. He went to the Lord. And he expressed his concerns. He was honest. Lord, you said this, and this has happened, and this is where I'm at. And it's been rightly said, I don't know if you've heard this there, but, but, the, the, but, but the most worn weapon in all of Satan's arsenal is this weapon of discouragement that he uses against God's people. But the fact of the matter is, is this weapon that Satan has that he's so handy in using will have no powers against us, no power against us when we take that discouragement, when we take our burdens and cast them before the Lord and lay them at his feet like we see Moses doing here. And when, and when Moses did this, we see that God was faithful. What did God do at this point? He said, he said, I am the Lord. In other words, in the very beginning, God was taking that burden away from Moses. He says, you don't worry about it. It's mine. You don't carry that. It's mine. And he encouraged Moses by first reminding him in verses 2 and 3 of who he was, saying, I'm the Lord Almighty. Then in verses 4 or 5 of what he had already done by saying more than once, I have. And then in verses 6 and 7 with the seven I will statements, God reminded Moses of what he had promised to do. And when we come to the Lord in those times that are discouraging to us, we will be spared from that discouragement because God will do the same for us. And God's been teaching me to, to, to live a life that isn't ruled by discouragement. Does that mean that there's not going to be discouraging things? No, life is full of discouraging things. But to live a life in victory, free from the discouragement of the discouraging things, this is what the Lord has been talking to me about, and it's clear here the recipe to not allow that weapon to penetrate into your heart as the enemy fires those fiery darts. In light of this, I want to look a little closer at these I will statements. So now we're going to wrap it up this morning and see how they apply to our lives today. I want to point out one last thing. You know this, whenever there's a, there's a discouraging thing and you bring it before the Lord, God's always going to tell you, go back to the battle, guys. And that's part of what, what we talked about this weekend. And, and even though Moses still had discouraging things facing, they're not going to listen to me. What did God say? Go back to the battle. Go back to the battle. 
when God first commanded Moses, if you look there in verse 6, to go, and he says to the children of Israel, he says, he says here, um, I will bring you out from the burdens of Egypt. The word that comes to mind is the word salvation. And see, what I want to point out to you as we close is, is that these, these seven I will statements, we're going to see, guys, this really awesome connection that transcends into our lives today in what God promises here where he says, I will, I will, I will. And the first is this statement, I will bring you out from the burdens, from under the burdens of Egypt, and really what the Lord is saying is, I'll save you. I'll save you. And when we consider, as I've talked about this in the very beginning of when we started this study, that Egypt's a spiritual picture of the world. Furthermore, it's an illustration of the world system and really the lost condition of man. And when we consider this and look at this that in light of the fact that God said that he, he or declared that he would bring his people out from this, from Egypt, from the world system, from that lost condition that we are in, we see that the same salvation that God has done for us is present in this text and that he brought us out from under the burden of sin, which is death, Right? What is the burden of sin? What is the way to sin? Death. God has saved us through the saving work of Jesus Christ, who is our deliverer. Now, the next I will statement is also found here in verse 6 where God said this. He said, I will rescue from their bondage. I will rescue you from your bondage. And this statement is speaking of liberation, is it not? Of freedom. It's different than salvation. Is it, this, is it connected? Is it part of God's saving work? For sure. But God saved us from the burden of sin, the weight of sin, but he's also liberated us. And God's speaking about how he would remove his people from Egypt and that he would rescue them from their bondage. And this is also what God has done for us. He's not only removed the burden of sin from us, he has set us free from the bondage of sin. He's removed the burden of sin and he's set us free from the bondage of sin. To walk, the Bible says, in a new life through the sanctifying power of the Holy Spirit. I mean, I don't have to be like I once was. I'm a new creation. And those things that once held me captive no longer do. And really, this points us to the third I will statement there at the end of verse 6 where God said, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and great judgment. And guys, for the children of Israel, their redemption was a result of God's judgments, we're told, against Pharaoh. Yet for us today who have been saved from the burden of sin and liberated from the bondage of sin, our redemption, our payment literally for the debt that we owed came as a result of the outstretched arms of Jesus that were nailed to the cross where God's judgment that we deserved was then poured out upon him who paid our debt and in turn redeemed us. Redemption. Now, as we look to verse 7, if you look there, we have the fourth and really the fifth I will statements. And here God said first, I will take you as my people. You know what this talks about? Adoption. I'll take you as my people. And this points us to adoption, the same adoption that we've received and how we, the Bible tells us, have been made sons and daughters, co-heirs with Christ, literally purchased, redeemed 
into the family of God. Why? Because of his unconditional love for us. And we know that it's through a new covenant that's been established in the blood of our deliverer, in the blood of Jesus, and guaranteed or sealed or assured by the indwelling, the gift of the Holy Spirit. And then God said, the end of verse 7, I will be your God and you shall know that I am the Lord who delivered you. In other words, God was saying, because you are mine, I will reveal... My plans, my purposes, my will, myself to you. And revelation of who God is is so that we might know him and know the good things that he has planned for us, right? And God's desire to reveal himself to us is important because revelation is a foundation of of a personal and intimate relationship. Revelation, knowing somebody. And this is what God as a loving Father desires to have for us. He doesn't want to save us and have us stand out at a distance or stand afar from Him. He's adopted us. He wants us to know Him intimately and personally. And so part of that salvation is that He reveals Himself to us. His will. His plans for our lives. And as a, as a loving Father who wants us to know Him, He wants to reveal Himself to us. Part of that revelation is direction, is it not? How do I know what to do, God? How do I know where to go, Father? And in verse 8, God spoke not only of revealing Himself to His people, He spoke of leading them or directing His people when He said, I will bring you into the promised land. Likewise, our God who has saved us, liberated us, redeemed us, adopted us, and revealed to us promises to direct us and lead us into the promised land. Which, by the way, isn't heaven because there's no giants in heaven. But it is a spiritual representation of our life in Christ today, right now. God says, I will guide you. I will lead you. I will direct you. In addition to directing and leading our lives, God promises to provide for our lives. He promises provision for our lives. And at the end of verse 8, God made this known to the children of Israel when he said with this last statement, I will give it to you as a heritage. And I don't know about you. Justin, if you want to come up, we're going to close with this. Rich, I don't know about you guys, but when I consider all these things, I'm encouraged no matter what discouraging thing I'm facing. How can you not be? If God is for us, who can be against us? I'm encouraged as I realize what an awesome God we have and what a wonderful Savior Savior and Deliverer we have been given. In closing, I I want one final thing to point out, guys, and it's that I've looked. I've looked many times, and you can look there. If I'm wrong, you can point it out to me. But nowhere in these verses where God repeats these statements over and over again, this I will statement, there never is the words, if you. Is there? God never says, I will if you. Does he? Never once. In other words, all these promises of God And all that the Hebrew people had in regards to this, all they had to do was receive these things, receive these gifts. 
for these things, as it was to the Hebrew people, as it is to us, were unconditional. And you know what that's called? It's called good news. It's the gospel message. Our sins forgiven, the price is paid, and the work is done. And so we are free to receive God's plan of salvation, liberation, redemption, adoption, revelation, direction, and supernatural provision. Let's pray. Lord, thank you, God, for these words of encouragement today. Thank you for our deliverer, Jesus Christ. Thank you, God, that we can trust in you and know you. And Lord, we desire to know you more. So I pray, Father, that by the power of your Holy Spirit that you would sanctify us, Lord, that you would cause us to work and to walk in holiness and obedience to you. When we look at your goodness and your kindness for us, Lord, help us to have more faith to trust in you. Father, we love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You guys stand.